unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast. So we are back with our returning champion, the legendary copywriter and teacher, John Carlton. Last week, he gave us some valuable but little-known old-school copy tips and techniques that will boost your conversions and fatten up your profits. Thousands of copywriters and entrepreneurs have learned from Carlton. He still gets royalty checks every month from ads he wrote decades ago. And if you pull him away from writing copy, he plays a mean electric guitar. Now, Carlton agreed to come back because he has more to tell us than we could fit into one show. I'm proud to call him my friend and to have partnered with him on more things than we have time to mention before we get started. So, John, thanks and welcome back. David, glad to be here. Nathan, good to see you again. Cool. So I'd like to welcome listeners back to the podcast with this important announcement. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear in this podcast. And most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. Nathan, you said you had something on your mind. So why don't you start us rolling? Okay, so this is a question for both of you, but um, we talked about, last week we were talking about uh, Claude Hopkins, and I think most of the focus was on scientific advertising. My favorite book by Claude Hopkins is uh, actually My Life in Advertising. I love that book. I've probably read that book 30 times. One thing that I pulled out of it that I don't hear very many copywriters talk about is positioning. Uh, A lot of times we talk about copy and we talk about... Um, the writing, but Claude Hopkins was a, a genius when it came to positioning products. A lot of times he could take something that wasn't selling and just by positioning it as something different than they were than the way they were trying to sell it, um, it wouldn't even be about the copy a lot of the times. It would be about how it was displayed in the store or how it was uh, how it was um, there was examples about how he took failing broom companies and turned them into household names. Um, I'd like, yeah, I'd like to kind of get your guys' take on maybe some of the outside of copy stuff that Claude Hopkins uh, was maybe not so well known for. Hmm. Carlton, you want me to jump in? and, sure. and you can. So the one thing I got from him is the power of using personality in, um, in changing the image of what he, his words, a soulless corporation. Um, and he, he, he would do that, but you know, a a lot of it also came from his digging. He, he would just dig for facts and facts. I mean, there's the famous story about, about the beer where, yeah, you know, he, he went through the factory and he said, well, you steam clean your bottles four times. And the manager said, well, everybody does. I said, but nobody tells anybody else that. And he took them to number one in the marketplace. Um, what Claude Hopkins was good at doing was combining, well, there, I mean, obviously there were a lot of things, but the things that stick out to me is he would combine very systematic, hard-focused work with an incredible use of 
his imagination totally focused on what would sell. Yeah, um, Nathan, that, that kind of gets back to the USP, the, which a lot of people misunderstand. We could do a whole show on USP. The, the so-called inventor of the USP was um, David? Rosser Reeves. Rosser Reeves. And Rosser Reeves was an original madman living on Madison Avenue and working with cigarette and beer stuff. And, you know, cigarettes, you know, a lot of the advertising knowledge we have now come from advertising for cigarettes. It was a very, it was a very competitive market. But if you made a breakthrough, it was worth millions of dollars to the companies and it was cutthroat, you know, just same as Pepsi and Coke and Schlitz versus Budweiser, uh, which is ironic to really horrible beers you know <laughs> dominating the uh, american landscape that's funny so so the Id- original idea of the usp was unique um selling proposition and what he was talking about mostly was slogans essentially you know to 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 have some kind of metaphor or some kind of mini story in a slogan or a, or a song that positions the product in your mind so when when the housewife, you know, to be sexist, and that's who they were aiming at as, as housewives, went into the store, they went down, they went down the aisles and they said, oh, there's, you know, there's uh, Bisquick, you know, and they'll grab that or Uncle Ben's rice. So that that to me didn't quite cut it for direct response. So I changed it to unique, uniquely positioning yourself in order to sell. So that would be. U-P-S or P-U-S, positioning yourself uniquely in order to sell, PUS, you know, hor- horrible uh, acronym. But it, so this th- this goes right to the heart of it. If whether you're selling online, you're selling in a store, you're, you're going door to door, whatever, you have to position yourself to be able to start the conversation, uh, keep the conversation going, do, you know, pull in your persuasion tactics and actually make make an offer and close, close the deal. So, and then doing that uniquely, if you're in a very crowded um, market, then uh, like, like what, what Claude did with the beer thing, especially was just, it didn't matter if everyone was doing it. If no one was talking about it, that was an opportunity. So he was, he was looking for opportunities. And it, it, what, what he did was something I've been calling say, um, 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 being a sales detective, looking for those sales angles, either in 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 the stories the guys tell, and that's why when you have an, as a copywriter, when you have a new client and you go in there, it's a big mistake to just go in and listen to the client uh, talk about his product or his service, because you're going to get you're going to get the company line, you're going to get what he th- and if he's been in business for a while, he's had his success, he has no idea why people are buying anymore. He he has long ago left, especially if it's uh, if if it's something that makes your life better. Hopefully, if he's been in business for a while and he sells something that makes your life better, then his life is better. Then he doesn't understand what the prospect whose life needs to get better. He he's lost touch with that. So I I always like to go. I, I want to talk to the secretaries. If he has feet in the street salesmen, I want to talk to those guys. I really want to talk to customer service. See what what people are saying yeah. when they complain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Could, could I get you to take us down to ground level to the mean streets and the back alleys of what being a sales detective's like, and some of the obstacles you're going to run up against, and how you navigate your way around them? 
Yeah, people don't want to talk um, <clears throat> yet. And this is one of the reasons uh, salesmen lead better lives. They get what they want uh, because they know what they want. And, you know, the, the, the big thing for me when I was 32, when I read Napoleon Hill for the first time, Think and Grow Rich, I was stunned when I learned that, wait, I could actually want something and I could make a plan to go achieve, you know, to go acquire that. And then I can put that plan into action. This was goal set. It was, it drove me nuts. Why hadn't anybody ever told me about this? I didn't know I was allowed to want something. And I didn't know that it was okay for me to go and get it. And it certainly didn't make sense for me to make a plan to do this. Everything in my life had been just my random circumstance, you know, or happenstance. What salesmen run into is a reluctance to spill the beans when you're interviewing clients or you're interviewing talent or you're interviewing the people in customer service or whatever. And so you have to learn one of the best books. It used to be called the, uh, uh, the Salesman's Bible was, um, What's his name? So, uh, how to win friends and influence people? Oh, sure, um, um, Dale Carnegie. Dale Dale Carnegie. So, and in that, the simplest trick that I came away from was to get people to talk a little bit, listen, and then ask a question about what they've said, and get and the bonding that can take place even between two hostile people in all parts of marketing and advertising. It is a hostile situation. From the writer wanting to get a fee from a client who wants to pay the least for the most work and the writer wants to do the least amount of work for the most amount of money to the client, to the customer that wants the most value they can get for the least amount of money and the, and the client often is doing, doing the opposite. It's all this hostile stuff. And if you break it down, if, if you stop just going up against people, just trying to do front a face-to-face battle and instead coming through a side door. So, I mean, it's stunning what you can do with offering people a piece of gum, for example. I've done this on, on planes, trains, and automobiles. So you can break down that initial reluctance to talk, to engage. And, and once you do that, um, it's a very powerful term. You know, people talk about NLP and all of this stuff. They try to bring it in. You know, I, I got my psychology degree before NLP was a glimmer in uh, what's his name's eye. Right. And, um, and I see it for, for what it is. And it's just psychology with different, with different terms. You don't need any more psychology than, what's, um, and than what is in how to win friends and influence people. It's a very simple human interaction. And for a copywriter, if you never forget the fact that every single ad you have, is a little tiny salesman. He's digital, he's print, he's in the mail, he's, he's in a script that someone else says. Every, every word you write is a little salesman that goes out and operates one-on-one with another. It's just you and one other human being. That's all you do is make that sale because there aren't that many different types of people out there. And remember, in direct mail, what was it? 2% was a, was a control um, it, it, even an email, if you get 15% opens on an email, that's doing really, really well. Um, 
you know, that means that 80%, 80 to 90% of the, of the audience is not even paying attention to you at all. Yet you can make a fortune off of dealing with very, very small percentages of, of large lists. So once you realize that, you realize you're not trying to sell everybody. You're trying to reach a specific person with a specific need, with a specific message, with a specific product. And hopefully that product is going to be what he needs and, 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 and it's legit and it can help them. And you're doing, you're doing the, 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 you know, the Lord's work and, and you're, you're helping things and making every, everything better. So yeah, that, that just yeah. just everything in the, in the whole dynamic. Yeah, that's good. I mean, one thing I was thinking about when you were talking about the whole Dale Carnegie thing of just offering a, an act of kindness or a little bit of interest and and changing the dynamic is you know we're we're very tribal Uh, whether we like it or not we're very tribal and that's right i think the most important tribes in everyone's life is the people inside my circle and the people outside my circle and so you're going to be outside of someone's circle if they don't know you unless you're a celebrity and then the dynamics are really screwy but uh, other than that Um, and so if you, you know, you can almost sort of reach through the circle with a piece of gum or a kind word or listening or, and, and suddenly, you know, it's almost like you go through this portal into their inner circle and then they'll, you know, you'll open up to your friends. You'll, you'll tell friends things that you wouldn't tell a stranger. You'll say things in private that you wouldn't say in public. David, do, 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 I don't know if it happened to you, but a very common thing that happens to people in like grade school is a couple of guys will get mad at each other, get in a fight, throw punches, and then they become best friends. Yeah. And some of the, some of my best customers over the years, the guys have stayed with me the longest, who, who fight my battles for me, who, who, who are just, who would, who would stop a bullet for me are guys that originally were really pissed off. And because every, every, what happens in the world now and more and more as, we, as we're not interacting very much with each other, and then we interact with each other now in this new digital age, is it's worldview number one coming up against worldview number two. And it just clashes. And the savvy salesman doesn't clash. He finds, he finds points of contact, points of that, that we can agree on things like that and avoids the other ones or just, you know, becomes very malleable. So if, 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 if you come across somebody when, when you come across somebody who's angry in life, whether it's road rage or it's somebody pissed off that that's, you know, something's going wrong at the store. Some, they're not, their anger uh, is an affront to you. It's a, it's a threat to you and you, and you get, you, you become, um, attentive to that, and you're either worried about it, or you become enraged yourself, or whatever. But if you back away from that, and you look at it, why is this guy angry? And almost always, especially among guys, it's 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 an expression of powerlessness in a world fraught with difficulty that doesn't give a, a shit about him or his his troubles. And if you stop, and if you you don't have to fix things for him, but if you offer a kind word or you say, I brother, I, I, I know exactly what, 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 where, where you're coming from. If, if you do it, this is hostage uh, uh, negotiation stuff. This yep. is where, this is where you, you, you actually get inside of the other person's experience. You know, people talk about uh, walking a mile in another person's shoes and they'll say it, but they say it glibly. 
Is that a word? Glib, they're glib about it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's the most important thing you can do. That's, that's empathy. That's trying to explain empathy in a way that is palatable to the human, the average human. We all have the capacity for empathy. I'd say maybe 5% of people actually put it into action. More women than men, too. Men's, or women seem to come, come to it much more naturally than men. So men really have to fight this because men live in this very combative, uh, you know, competitive uh, uh, world. Their worldview is, is if, if you're not going to help me get what I want, then you may be against me and, that, and I have to watch for that. And that's why men have very few friends and things like that. Women are more, more, more community-oriented. Um, and I've, I've spent a lot, large part of my career trying to help women copywriters. There were almost none when I started out, and I've been pushing to get it. So now, now there are there are whole groups of women copywriters, and it's great because their voice is really needed in the marketplace. And men need to understand what women bring to the table as far as empathy. I, I, I just gave a talk recently, and it was kind of based on, on empathy. And it's like just a lot of blank, blank looks in the audience. It's like, yeah, yeah, sympathy you mean. No, I don't mean sympathy. It's not care. It's empathy. It's actually walking a mile in the other person's shoes, understanding their point of view from inside of their experience, from inside of the world. And one of the things that good salesmen have is they actually don't have a single worldview. They have this, this, fungible worldview that can expand and contract and move and do all kinds of things and fit in with any group they get thrown in with because they know that a single monolithic worldview is bullshit there there is the universe is much wider what's shakespeare's quote um there are more things horatio in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophies i think that's pretty close and we have to take that to heart if you have a hardcore worldview you know things are this way then you're you're kind of in a in a venn diagram you're here and the rest of the rest of the universe is way out there and you're you know and so salesmen are able to expand into that and you know, a lot of salesmen, I know, they get into meditation and things like that. Again, they're not superior people, and some real assholes and sociopaths get into salesmanship. But, you know, Gandhi was a salesman. Christ was a salesman. Um, it's it's uh, uh, the, the Dalai Lama is, is a salesman. And the Buddha was, 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 was a, probably the, the greatest salesman of them all. And it's, it's subtle, and it's, it's understanding people from inside of where they're at. You're not lecturing, you're having a conversation. And I think that's the essence of great A-list. A uh, uh, okay, so I'm going to ask you a question I've never been able to answer, but I figure I can put you on the spot since I got you here. <laughs> okay. Um, do you have any tips on how to get inside someone else's experience from the point of view being a copywriter or being a business owner or being a yeah. sales? Live, live a wild life. Stop, you know, stop. You put the book down and go out and walk around the mall. Go, go out, go, go, put yourself out of your comfort zone every day, half the day. Go, go out and don't just walk the dog. Stop and talk to the other dog owner. Talk to the people who are, who are not walking dogs and, and find out what they don't like about your dog and, and, and get all kinds of stuff. Go, go to a bar. Don't get drunk. Don't become an alcoholic. God knows we have enough of those in the biz. But 
um, go to places, go to watering holes. And again, you don't have to even drink liquor. You can drink uh, Virgin Marys or, you, you know, or, or just drink 7-Up and, and talk to people and listen to them and listen to them in all their different states. Why do people go to bars? You know, we could do a whole podcast on that, which is what people get up, they get dressed, and they go, they got, they got hopes and dreams and, or fears and wounds to, wounds to bind. And there's all kinds of reasons why they're there. And it's a, it's a real, it's a microcosm of the tribes meeting, but that's just bars. Go to bowling alleys, go to, um, you know, go to stores and interact with people and live, live a fairly substantial life. Uh, go on vacations, get involved in relationships, deepen those relationships, explore the parameters of the relationship. Um, I'm, a, I'm a stone cold uh, introvert, David. I know, I know you are too, Nathan. I suspect you are. But I get up in front of rooms of hundreds of people and I give talks and I interact with the audience, which the other speakers usually won't do. They're afraid to do it because they don't know what's going to happen. I don't care what happens. I don't care what the person says, but I'll challenge people in the audience and I'll ask them and get interaction going. It's fun. Uh, and, and, you ha- and like a good comic, you, you have a few ways of handling you, Like comics have ways of handling hecklers. A good speaker, even if they're an introvert, uh, has a way of handling somebody who tries to get them to talk about something they don't want to talk about. And, you know, I've, I've studied as an introvert to survive. We have to study extroverts because we have to exist in their world. It's an extroverted world, just mm-hmm. hands down. So for us to survive, we had to pay attention, figure out what they do, see how they act, what's going to piss them off, what's going to please them, what's going to um, um, cause problems, what's going to smooth the way for, for you to get, get what you want, essentially. And we can be extroverts. We can, we can put on the hat and pretend that we're extroverts and go out there and do all the expert stuff. It will exhaust us. And that's why, you know, the test between an extrovert and an introvert is go to a party, spend three hours at a party, come home. Are you jazzed? If you're still pumped and you're jazzed, you're an extrovert. If you're exhausted and all you want to do, you don't want to talk anymore, you want to, you want to sit down with a book or, or sit down and stare at the wall for a while, then you're an introvert and you're recharging. But that doesn't mean you have to spend all your time away from people. So interact, get involved with life. That's where this all comes from. The best writers, as we all know, were you know, guys that went out there and lived life. Hemingway went to war in Spain because he wanted to get experience. He didn't think he was worth a shit as a writer until he actually experienced something. Risked his life. Um, that's where it comes from. If you're, if if you think you know you're too old to be doing this stuff, that's not true. Uh, Hunter Thompson lived a wild, engaged life right up until his death. Um, and it's it's it, stop playing it safe. When I was in school, I met a girl who told me this thing. She's we, we were saying, hey, let's do this. Let's get in the car, go down and do this. And somebody said, no, I don't want to do it. it might, it's kind of late and it might be dangerous and blah, blah, blah. She says, you're a safe. So she in her world, there were the safes, the boring people that we were all waiting to leave the room so we could have fun. And then the adventurer, she didn't even have a name for them. They were us. And we, we'd go off and do things, and the safes kind of huddled around and got better grades and maybe got an internship and just stuff. But, you know, they're leading boring to shit lives, and they're the ones buying the products. The adventurers are writing later about how to live life to the, to the fullest. 
So there you go. Wrapped up neat in a bow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty good. Um, uh, you know what? I never put together, you know, having adventures and and um, going out of your comfort zone with having empathy. But you're right. You're, you're, absolutely you're going out, out of your comfort zone, Garf, in just a couple of weeks. You're going to Vegas for the mastermind. Yeah. yeah. Um, David, by the way, for for years, when I was doing, I, I didn't call them seminars. I called them uh, copywriting sweatshops and hot seat seminars. And I would just charge, I forget what I charged, it was like five grand, even back yeah, it was. in 2003. And Garf was my favorite wingman to have in because he could remember the names of Ross or Reeves and all those guys. And he always had insightful comments to make and he paid attention or anything. So Garf it was, it was a great wingman. And I'm very happy when he comes to the to the uh, masterminds, he tends not to fly very much. And I totally understand that I'm getting there myself, but he's, he's flying to Vegas by God. And we're going to be in a, in old town Vegas, which is my favorite part. It's much wilder. It's much more down to, it's kind of the working class version of, of, of Vegas. And that's, that's the, them's my people, as I like to say, and you know, Garth, we're, it, it, you're guaranteed an adventure there with the people that will be there in the mastermind. Just the fact we're in Vegas and, you know, anytime, every time you walk out the door, there's going to be something going on. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the kind of getting out of my comfort zone. I like though. I enjoy yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. But, but you're right. It's, um, it's not usually what I do every day. I, I do want to tell you a, a story to help introverts and extroverts sort of understand each other. So um, an introvert staying at home, the extrovert comes home, immediately turns on the lights, the TV, uh, the radio says, yeah, I had a pretty good day at work, as a matter of fact. Meanwhile, the introvert is crawling under the covers, hiding, terrified, freaked out. Well, I don't know about that. I like to call it recharging. I mean, I, 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 I have, I, I think extroverts have this almost bottomless you know, twelve gallon vat of stimulation that that they that they can handle, and extroverts have a quart jar. You know, and, and sometimes not even that. And when we overload on stimulation, it's painful. I'm yeah. getting very light sensitive in my old age. I, I think everybody driving at me at night has their brights on, <laughs> so I get very irritated at bright lights. And half of the movies out there, you start to understand when you have light sensitivity is whenever somebody switches on a flashlight and goes outside or down the stairs into the basement or something, they're going to flash it right into the camera at some point. And I have to like be, be totally aware of when that's going to happen and hide my eyes or wow. you know, it's, it's painful. And that's kind of a metaphor for an introvert living. It's painful when you're overstimulated, you're, you're used up, you need to go recharge and they won't let you go. You know, this, when I was a kid, the family wouldn't, I, I grew up in a family of extroverts. Good God, it was, it was kind of pain. They finally gave up and they let me sleep late on Saturdays because they're all up at 6 a.m. Like, Come on, the day's getting gone. I'm a night owl introvert. It took me until I was about eight years old for they just left me the hell alone. So I, th- I think the overstimulation for the introvert is the equivalent of um, an extrovert having to spend a whole day alone. Oh, I mean, isn't that funny? Can't do it, right? Yeah, I I post that on on Facebook sometimes. I just say, you know, introvert or expert, are you, you know, you have a whole day to yourself. 
and all to yourself. Are you elated or terrified? You know, and most people who follow me are elated because I don't know, introverts attract other introverts, but the extroverts will chime in and go, what are you guys talking about? That, that sounds horrible to me. You know, I'd have to go out and f- make a new friend. You know, I'd have to do something. Like, no, give me a book. I don't leave the house for days at a time. No, you don't leave the apartment for days at a time. No. So it's, it, I got too much stuff going on. We live inside our heads. Anyway, we're not supposed to be talking about the introverts. No, I mean, I think that's important because um, I think most writers are introverts, but there probably are writers who are extroverts. You know, um, Joyce Carol Oates is a great writer. I'm not familiar with the work. She has a master class on right now. And I think this would be useful both for introverts and extroverts. I saw one of the promo videos, and it says, the reason you're a failure as a writer has nothing to do with your talent. The reason you're <laughs> a failure as a writer is because other people keep interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. So anyway, Carlton, thanks. This is, this is great. Um, your blog, John Carlton, john-carlton.com. Yeah. And um, again, I want to recommend um, carltonsystem.com, your simple writing system. We'll put both those in the show notes. Okay. And I will see you in Vegas not long from now. Great. It was fun. Really had a blast. Thanks for hosting this, Nathan. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. I thoroughly enjoyed both last week and this week's conversation. And uh, I, David, I'm going to say we should get John back on in the near future because this was just way too much fun for me. Well, if he'll have us, we'll have him, that's for sure. Until next time, go check out more episodes over at copywriterspodcast.com and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. If you found this show valuable and you'd like to get it in the ears of other people, the best way to do that is to subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.